Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this episode of Cracking Addiction. And we have with us Dr. Daniel Pham. Hello, Dan. How are you? Not too bad, Fergal. How are you? I'm good. So I thought today we'd talk about uh, dual diagnosis and in particular the, 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 the particular depression rather than saying mood disorders. Let's focus on depression. So let's talk a little bit about the definitions. I mean, how, how would you as a psychiatrist think about the diagnosis of, de of depression and all the various other subtypes of depression that we, we know exist? Yeah, I think I, to think about that, I need to really need to go back to the, just defining what we think, talk about when we talk about mood. Yeah. So at a very basic term, mood is a person's emotional state, whether that's happy, sad, angry, excited. Mm. Um, and if we have extreme and long-lasting moods, that can be a problem, um, particularly if it starts to negatively affect, you know, your work, your study, relationships, responsibilities. And if you have that persist and then be so sort of far-reaching that it starts affecting your daily life, then you may have a mood disorder. Yeah, yeah, because the, the, the concept of disorder really is not just predicated on phenomenology or the presentation but it's also in, um, predicated on the presence of impairment or, or dysfunction yeah absolutely so it's going to be bad it, enough to make you impaired yeah and yeah. absolutely if you look at any dsm criteria for uh, mental health disorders they always have this line at the bottom that says this is causing clinically significant distress and impairment mm. in yeah I, yeah it's interesting because what mood disorder, particularly depression, and anyone can identify with being sad. That's a normal human condition. Mm. But when does that sadness become disorder? When does it become depression? And so, I, yeah. I mean, you know, just going back to that point about everyone feels sad. I mean, the, if you look at the, if you look at the reactivity and the timelines of, of feeling sad, that can allude to a diagnosis, can it not? Yep, absolutely. Um, I think you're sort of alluding to the idea of grief or complicated grief or adjustment disorders, and that can have mm -hmm. a sort of simple timeline. I yeah. guess what separates those kind of disorders and from, say, major depression, again, that sort of little nature and severity of the symptoms and what that means. Um, so I guess going back to your original question, how do we define it? When you think about depressive disorders, there's a number of things that you can think about. So major mm -hmm. depressive disorders, one. Um, Persistent depressive disorders, or what we used to call dysthymia, mm -hmm. uh, substance disorders that lead to depressive symptoms. Mm -hmm. And in the recent DSM, I think they also came out with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is a fairly newish concept as well. And yeah. on top of that, you also have depression symptoms caused by medical conditions, which is a, another thing that you've know, got to keep your eyes out for. Yeah, so there's various, various specifiers. But if we, if we, Focus purely on major depressive disorder. How do you diagnose a major depressive disorder? Yeah, so you need to have symptoms that are persistent um, yeah. and cover a range of different um, criteria. So the cardinal mm. features are having a low mood. You need to be depressed in the first place. Yeah. And, and most of again, these symptoms have to last for at least most of the time for two weeks. That's the sort of yeah. threshold we're looking for. The other cardinal symptom would be that sort of anhedonia, the lock of loss of interest or pleasure in life. Mm -hmm. And apart from that, there are a number of other sort of symptoms you can look at. So there's suicidal thoughts or thoughts of death. 
um, coming with a sort of sense of hopelessness about the future. Um, impaired concentration, just constant rumination or just impaired focus in some ways. Then you have the physical symptoms like sleep. So people can actually either oversleep or undersleep. So having very disrupted or poor sleep because of depression. Uh, appetite, again, either way. You can have very reduced appetite, just not feel hungry at all, or you can be overeating. Um, the, the sleep and the appetite, though, they can they can allude to a typical depression, can they not? So if you're overeating and you're oversleeping, and you're stuck in bed all day under the duvet and you don't want to face the world, that's different from the depression where you're, you're losing weight and you can't sleep or you've got early morning awakening, isn't it? Possibly. Um, and you, like when we talk about these sort of clusters and different subtypes, sometimes yeah. they're can be very, very cleanly of one. So I think we're talking about agitated depression as one subtype. Yeah. And so the very slow sleeping all the time, that was, we're talking more about the melancholic depression. Mm. It's very difficult to treat. But often sometimes people don't really fall neatly into each category. So that's why sure. I sort of have that sort of disclaimer. Yeah, yeah um, sure. And psychomotor agitation is still something we didn't cover, which probably applies to both. So that's sort of a very depressed person, often very psychomotor type. Psychomotor is sort of slowed, thinking, the action is just really slow, everything is very much an effort. Or you can have that agitation even when you're feeling depressed and just constantly on edge kind of thing. Sure. Um, and we've talked about the loss of pleasure and interest and anhedonia, but also a motivation, just getting out of bed. A lot of patients say, look, just getting out of bed and facing a day is a real chore. And they feel yeah. this other feature of this energy, this lack of energy they feel tired all the time despite the fact they're sleeping all the time yeah so you need there's about nine key cr criteria that's perfect and you need about four or five of them in over two weeks to qualify for a diagnosis of major depressive disorder yeah i mean i suppose if we're, if we're trying to look at those nine um we we also need to think about this idea of worthlessness and, and guilt and low self-esteem and you know poor concentration so uh, you know that we've, we've got the kind of the biological criteria that the you know the, the weight loss the fatigue the, you know psychomotor changes sleeping but then we've got these kind of these ideations this you know i feel terrible i'm a bad person i'm worthless i can't do anything yeah as you mentioned i can't guilt. concentrate guilt, guilt you know yeah i cause a lot of burden for other people around me yes yeah That's a very common theme yeah I mean, you know, thinking about suicide, which is one of the factors for for the diagnosis of dep of major depressive disorder. You know, one of the themes, is, two themes that really worry me is this: when people talk about how they feel isolated, that really concerns me. But also, when people talk about how they feel as if they're a burden on others. You know, when I hear those two, uh, it it really makes me, you know, sit up and pay attention. Yeah, and it's important to understand that we're going to we're talking to a but people getting to a point where this is a very much a clinical disorder. Mm. Just, you know, bad thoughts that can be told. Say, no, you know, don't think that way. You don't have to, you're not a burden, that kind of thing. Mm. It really very much is a cognitive distortion, and it's part of the mental illness. They're having a state of mind which is, which is not what they normally would be. And if treated properly, that can be reversed. Mm. We'll talk about treatment a bit later. But, again, it's not just an idea of they can just think their way out of it, which is often yeah. a bad thing. Yeah, snap out of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you know, some of my patients are told that. Get on with it. Snap out of it. Pull yourself together. <laughs> yeah. I think it's an important thing to sort of explain to not only patients, but also family and friends and carers, because it can be quite frustrating and distressing to have a loved mm. one, you know, sort of always, you know, they seem like they're just moping around. They could mm. choose to be happy if they just get out of bed kind of thing. Well, sometimes it's not that easy. Sometimes yeah. it gets to the point where maybe there is something biological or deeply psychological yeah. going on yeah. that needs treatment. So that those are the criteria for major depressive disorder. But, you know, you did mention earlier on this concept of persistent depressive disorder or, or um, dysthymia. Tell, tell, what's, what's that? How do you diagnose that? So it's largely the same criteria as depression, but it lacks some of the more severe or significant um, criteria and also some of the, what we call the neurovegetative symptoms, that sort of the very physical symptoms yeah. like the uh, appetite. You still have, I'm oh, sorry, you do have still have the appetite. You still have the insomnia or hypersomnia, and you still have the low energy and the poor self worth. But you don't have so much the the suicidality or that sort of um, intense anhedonia. So mm. you still feel sad, but you're not getting to the point that's severe yeah. that's as severe as major depression. Yeah. So you can go up yeah. this line, and you can have this persisting for a lot longer than just a few weeks. So yeah, yeah. the diagnosis, I think you need to have the symptoms for at least, you know, observe for at least two years. To two years. Yeah, yeah. So you really, you've got to feel depressed for two years. I mean, you know, the, 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 the untreated prognosis for a major depressive episode, my understanding of that is that it's about, you know, it can vary between six to 12 months, but the diagnostic criterion for persistent depressive disorder is at least two years. I mean, you know, that's, that's awful. I think the other way to think about that, the people who are already suffering really significant symptoms, that two two week mark to count, you know, that sort of persistence and pick it up. Mm. Two years, I think, not not wanting to diminish the, the the idea and diagnosis of dysthymia, but you're really capturing the people who don't really make that sort of sub threshold for the major depression. Mm. They have this low underlying grumbling. You know, they're still yeah. low mood and other things. Yeah, but there's crumble along and not really get affected as much as depression. So I think that's that's why they have that sort of two-year mark sort of capture of that mm. lower majority of things. Because yeah. these people may not often be as disabled as someone with a major depressive disorder. Yeah. The other thing that's not covered in DSM but sort of gets alluded to in ICD is that idea of adjustment disorder. Yeah. Or, and that's sort of, again, depressive symptoms not quite making the threshold for major depression, but... Mm in the context of a stressor, you know, you had get bullied at work or something happened, you have a breakup and it just persists mm. longer and longer and longer. Yeah, yeah. So really, I, I read uh, somewhere that adjustment disorder was really a diagnosis of normality in terms of feeling sad and reacting, but it not, that's not to take away the potential misery associated with that diagnosis. Yeah. But it doesn't, again, as you see, yeah, yeah. Doesn't, meet, it doesn't meet the diagnostic thresholds. Yeah, and to be sad after something bad happens is a very normal human reaction. Mm. Where one can argue it is a social cultural lens you have to see it through. When does it become something that's mm. not normal? Like, yeah, uh, if you're sad that you broke up with your partner, sure, but that's still mm. a case, and it's affecting your concentration and it's affecting your sleep. You know, months after yeah. the fact, maybe it's at the point where you need to get some help. Yeah, yeah. Now, we, we're meeting on a podcast called Cracking Addiction. So I suppose it behoves us 
to to look at mood disorders or to look at depression through the lens of of substances so is there is there a diagnosis that we can look at in this context of, of the combination of substances and and um mood no. depression well it's a it sort of uh how you say it throws back to our previous sort of talk about co-occurring disorders so you can have mood disorders that lead to drug and alcohol use if you're feeling mm. quite you know negative about the world having a drink helps you cope and you develop an mm -hmm. alcohol use in the same vein having depressant symptoms or having constant withdrawal intoxication can lead to you developing a mood disorder in itself yeah so alcohol so, look, look going back to that alcohol can occur alcohol use disorder can occur as a result of depression but it too can also cause depression yeah and there's a special category of substance induced uh, mood disorders uh, and again, you're having the same symptoms, but there's a, a correlation you can draw in your history taking of the substance causing that. So alcohol leads to depression. So in particular, I'm thinking in that context of substance-induced depressive disorder. Um, and I suppose that that would be that could be alcohol, couldn't it? You know, if you had an alcohol use disorder causing a depression, that could be a substance-induced um, depressive disorder. Be, and you could be any of those things as well. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, any other substance like stimulants or opioids. Yeah. I often will explain to patients, you know, it's not a nice ride having this up and down cycle of intoxication, withdrawal, intoxication, withdrawal. Withdrawals mm. aren't much fun. There are a lot of physical symptoms and a lot of mood symptoms that come with withdrawal. Yeah. And that can sort of just compound on top of your other sort of stresses. You know, life's not that great when you're constantly nauseated but also going through financial stress and also going through family stress from your substance use all contributing yeah. to depression and i guess that also highlights that with depression in general our understanding of the actual cause the etiology of depression is actually quite limited we don't actually know exactly what causes it because it can be quite complex it could be a genetic thing we know that depression can run if you have a strong family history of depression you're more likely to have it Mm. Or it could be a psychosocial thing. So if you mm. grow up poor, if you grow up disadvantaged, you're more likely going to have uh, developing depressive disorders, for example. Yeah, um, yeah, the good old monoamine hypothesis that I that I, I don't know if you I, I'm slightly older than you. I don't know if you were taught that in medical school, but I certainly was, and uh, you know that's been debunked now uh, as, as as an explanation for the etiology of depression. Yeah, I was taught that. I think it's, it's still getting taught because it's a relatively reductionistic but easily digested way of understanding yeah. how depression yeah. and anti antidepressants work. Yeah. And for those not so aware, monoamine's sort of theory sort of implies that a deficiency in one of the monoamines, particularly serotonin, leads to the development of depression. And we know it's a lot more complicated than that now. It doesn't, doesn't discount the fact that, you know, our antidepressants that work on serotonin they do work, but whether that's because we boost the level of serotonin in our neurons or it's because it, that boost leads to development of neural pathways of reshaping of things, it's not very clear. Yeah. How then also does psychology, you know, talking through stresses, how does that help with yeah. depression in some ways? Yeah, that's a, that's a really valid point, you know, because we know that psychological therapies do help in depression, so, you know, they certainly don't alter monoamines. I've heard about, uh, you know, maybe not the etiology, but I think depression can be seen through the lens of negative affective bias, where 
by various etiological mechanisms, you just see the world with a gray depressive lens. And I'm, I'm led to believe that the, the role of antidepressants in reversing negative effective bias is very good. They really do it very quickly. But again, it takes, once you've altered that negative effective bias, you, um, it still takes a number of weeks or a number of days, in fact, just to, to, to lift the mood. There was a game that was developed specifically for kids. I can't remember what it was called, but it was meant to help educate mental health. And it was a very, very useful way of helping to educate about depression in, to kids. Mm where you'd be given choices to make and you obviously knew what was the best choice for their question being asked, but those choices were grayed out. You couldn't select them. They were there, but you couldn't actually see that. And it just sort of reflects that sort of negative cognition that you get very much shoehorned and you just, you can't think, like I said before, you can't really think your way out. You're just sort of, sort of rigidly in that negative mind space, that sort of mm. hopelessness, that sort of negative self-concept in some ways. Yeah. One thing you also touched on was the, the treatments. The treatments for the, depression we have now they are very effective but unfortunately they often take a lot of time as well yeah what are the i mean i think maybe it was going to say what are the treatments for depression i mean you know that's that's two or three talks in itself isn't it i mean can you can, you know broad broadly and quickly can you summarize the treatments for depression absolutely because when you when we diagnose major depression we can stratify it into mild moderate severe at the mild end like beyond anything you start off with lifestyle and then i think you'll be a big proponent of this Phil. absolutely Lifestyle yeah. is a huge thing just having good hygiene good self-care good diet and i mean it is a very easy to say but often this can be quite challenging particularly in major depression mm. but advocating daily exercise good diet can be a huge thing yeah. I feel can, I, can i just can i just yeah. interrupt with the exercise right so i yeah. read a very clever paper mm where by some very clever statistics uh, that I could not understand, they worked out that if you exercised and burnt off 17 and a half calories per kilogram per week, that that was a good antidepressant. 17 and a half calories per kilogram per week is an antidepressant. Yeah, imagine it gets the endorphins going, probably contributes uh, to that. I mean, well. I don't know why, but yeah, that figure stuck in my mind. Again, it, we say that, and some of these things are very simple to sort of address. But, but also, if you're already amotivated and idolic, not getting out of bed because of this crippling addiction, uh, sorry, crippling depression, going that getting that regular exercise could be a challenge in itself. And that's probably the role clinicians and health professionals have in trying to figure out ways we can facilitate that. So, it, beyond the lifestyle things, particularly for the mild end of the spectrum, we actually all advocate, you know, less. Um, more conservative measures like psychotherapy. So psychotherapy works great in mild depression. And that pick, take your pick. There's a lot of studies around CPT, motivational interviewing, or ACT therapy, so acceptance commitment. They all have their, their efficacy, and just whatever works for you in that sort of space. I think the key mm -hmm. thing for the psychotherapy is just picking someone you can actually form a good relationship with and actually yeah. work yeah. those issues. And then... If you're going up to the more moderately severe end of the spectrum and beyond, you're talking about either choosing pharmacotherapy or psycho psych psychotherapy or a combination of both. So yeah. just very briefly, I'm talking about pharmacotherapy. You're really talking about antidepressants. So SSRIs or SNRIs, tricyclics, they're all varying effectiveness, but you really just, so they're all effective in some ways, but you're really picking the one that also that is well tolerated. And unfortunately, 
you need to wait a certain amount of time for them to work. So you need to get to a good dose where you can tolerate and then wait about six to eight weeks. That's roughly the amount of time it takes for some people to get the full effect. Some people may even notice some effect a bit earlier, two or four weeks, but we normally would give six to eight weeks before we declare if it's working or not. So you do a combination, or mm. if you get to such a severe that's you know jeopardizing life and limb in some ways, mm. we're talking about ECT. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, on, on the subject of antidepressants in depression, I mean, people ask me, well, look, you know, will they work? Will I feel better? And, you know, there is this knee-jerk reaction to the prescription pad when, when a lot of clinicians are faced with someone in distress or someone in the, who presents with a mood disorder. I think the, it's important to understand that the best, the best predictor of efficacy for an antidepressant is the severity of the, de, of the depression. So if you don't have severe depression, it's less likely that the antidepressant per se is going to have any significant effect. And, you know, I, I always bring it down to, you know, this, this certainly for SSRI. So the numbers needed to treat for an SSRI, I read elsewhere that it's about seven. Right. So that means that seven people need to be treated with an SSRI for one person to get better. Now, that, that sounds pretty awful, but you've got to put it into context. So, for instance, the numbers needed to treat for neuropathic pain with, um, with uh, Lyrica is also seven. So that's not so bad. But what, what concerns me is this, the rate of side effects. The rate of side effects for SSRIs is about two-thirds. So two-thirds of patients are going to have some kind of side effect on an SSRI. And, not and to the numbers the needed to treat of seven. So you've got to put it into that context. They're not a panacea. They have to be used judiciously and appropriately. And the best predictor is the severity of the depression. Yeah. No, totally agree with that. Yeah. Look, on that sweet note, we're probably going to have to wrap it up. Um, I want to thank you for your expertise, and I hope we can meet again soon, Dan. Thank you, Fergal. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. Yeah.